From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is The Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and today we're going to change things up a bit. Normally, I host guests. This time, the tables get turned. I'm joined by Rebecca Clark. I was actually a guest on her show. Her show is called Move Your Desk. Wonderful podcast. I think she's up to 120 episodes. She's just running away with it. Very, very proud of her efforts because we have worked together she is a learning expert, lots of experience in our industry, managing projects, developing projects, you name it. So what ensues is a conversation about design. That was always a common thread through many a conversation I had over many years with Rebecca as we tackled the challenges before us. But enough from me. I'm going to roll tape and let Rebecca drive the show today. I'm excited today to have a guest on the show. It's been a while. And this guest is someone I've mentioned in some of my prior podcast episodes because he's influenced many of my ideas around design and being an advocate for design, whether it's in product development or in our life or in our work. He's been a great influence on me. So I wanted to bring on Anthony Rotolo today to talk about some of the implications of design in our world. And he's such a design advocate that I thought it would be the perfect conversation. And just so you know, we're going to be kind of talking about learning, work performance, technology, innovation, all wrapped up in this design concept. And the reason we can do this is because Anthony has an extensive background in design. And though he didn't necessarily start his career in design, he ended up in media production where he was able to design graphics and videos, movies, lead teams that were creating these products. And then of course he got into music and self-publishing and podcasting and all kinds of things. But I will let him share just a little bit more. I tried to share some of it in a nutshell, but welcome to the show, Anthony. I'm excited to have you here after planning on having you for over a year. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy to be with you, Rebecca. It's always fun to talk and hopefully like, you know, the, the talks where there's no microphone recording, it's always, uh, we range and rove and we go to interesting places. So right. it'll be fun to see what happens today. Yes. And was there anything, I mean, I know I left out a lot about you just now, but was there anything you'd like to just add that you are interested in doing or some of your skills and experiences before we move forward into our discussion? Sure. So if I can give a quick sketch of the other parts of my resume, I became interested in design. I began, my, my career actually began in the investment world which was a wonderful experience because the through line to my career is having clients trying to understand their needs and pair them up with a solution. And that really is in the heart of it. That is design. That's what we do. We solve problems. And so that gave me some skills, again, in an accidental way, in an unforeseen way that I carried over when I began helping clients with design matters. And this led me into traditional graphic design and print-oriented work. 
Then with the rise of multimedia and web, I found myself in everything from web design to motion design, video. I do a lot of corporate shoots and video-based things, audio work, a lot of interview-based media, whether it's a true distributed podcast or some other form of conversation capture. So uh, all that stuff, really, it's all stuff that we create. It all comes under the umbrella of design. So kind of that's where I'm at. And I try to draw from all those experiences, even when I'm in a very focused context, which is to create learning products. Well, and that's what I think is so amazing, really, is because when you come to each of these new media or these new steps in your career, when you give feedback to people on design, and options, you are coming from a place where you have been experiencing it in many different settings and using many different tools and meeting different customer needs. And that kind of experience is so important and valuable going forward in whatever you do, because you're not just coming to it with fresh eyes, you're also coming with experienced eyes, I guess, which it's, that's a tough balance sometimes to combine your past experience plus look at it in a new way. And yet you do like you, you're the person I tell people, you're the person that introduced me to Seth Godin. Uh, You were the person that would be willing to stop design meetings and say, wait, we need to think about this differently. We're kind of defaulting right now, right? Let's think about the user experience. Let's think about how others are actually going to use this and create something that's valuable. Yeah, yeah, design. I think design, when you, you really are, when you have the principles inside you, design becomes a good safeguard where um, everything is in the approach. So if you find yourself, let's say, in a meeting and you, you're kind of sensing that something is ill conceived or won't work, it helps you to spot that earlier. So you can say, hey, let, time out, guys. Let's, um, let's talk about this a bit more, you know? Because you have you yes. have to you know if you can pre visualize what you're going to do, and extrapolate the outcome, it's like Stephen Covey, you know, begin with the end in mind, right? And I think designers and particularly visual designers have a great advantage in that they they train themselves to to really see the outcome before they begin. And if they're, I think it becomes a natural thing. The more experience you have, you're like all right, how am I going to actually get from A to Z? Because I see some problems at J, K, you know. (laughs) So it's that type of thing that happens. Well, one of the things that came to mind when you were talking is a book that I'd read a few years ago from Daniel Pink, and it was A Whole New Mind. And he talks about how the future belongs to a different kind of person with a different kind of mind. And that kind of mind is the artists, the innovators, the storytellers, and creative people. And when you're talking about beginning with the end in mind, realizing that sometimes we aren't thinking through the end in mind, right? We're, especially in work environments, going, okay, we're supposed to get this deliverable out. And you think, oh, of course, the end in mind is the deliverable. But really what we're trying to do is spend a certain amount of money within a certain amount of time just to get something out to someone and sometimes the design kind of slips by the wayside because it's easier to default to what's always been done. And that checks a box quickly. But at the end of the day, 
is it really meeting someone's need? Is it really thoughtful? And is it something that people would want to come back for more because it's helping them perform or it's helping them have an emotion that's helping create something that they're happy about in their life or in their work? And so I really am interested in talking about some of these ideas with you around design because I think a lot of us in the world have started to recognize, oh, wow, it's no longer about getting cheaper, faster to more people necessarily. A lot of us are seeking to, no kidding, make choices that make our life more enjoyable, that make our work more enjoyable so that we can offer up our best work. And in order to do that, we have to thoughtfully think about design and Recently, I read a book by, it was edited by Tom Wujek, and he's done a lot of TED Talks, but he's also a big part of Autodesk, AutoCAD products. And so he's in that world of innovation and technology and creativity and design, you know, that you are in just from a different angle, right? Creating something that helps engineers and architects build better things, but he's gotten into quite a few different multidisciplinary areas, which we'll be talking about, right? Because design brings together so many parts of our world. And what I loved about this book, Imagine Design Create, is there's some key questions that he puts forward and then shows examples as he explains why we should ask these questions and some of the different insights from those questions. So I thought we'd use those questions as a basis for our discussion, knowing that... As we answer one question, we may answer some of the others. And the first question that he brought up is why is design important? Why does it matter? Um, What's the impact of design? And before I ask you what you think about that, I just wanted to share a very simple work example. And because I talk a lot about moving your desk, I wanted it to be about a desk. So Mm -hmm. in the past, a lot of us, We've always had a desk all through school and in our work, most of us have a desk. And in the last 10 or 15 years, it was kind of this big change in what kind of desk we use. And I know I remember having a desk where there were, you'd sit down and there were drawers on both sides and often there'd be a drawer right above your lap. And this was terrible for me because I'm tall And then you just have all these little drawers and you're focused on trying to get comfortable instead of doing the work that you're trying to do at your desk. But along came standing desks and it was amazing to me. I thought, this is wonderful. We get to stand up and do our work, but then a lot of them, you could push the levers and move them down, but still it wasn't quite right. And I remember that we worked together during this time period where our organization got standing desks and they were great. So there were some problems they plugged in and (laughs) sometimes they didn't work correctly. And it would like be lopsided when you move the desk up and down. And for me, even at the tallest setting, it wasn't tall enough. So still one of the cube mates, Paula brought in some plastic things to put under the legs so that it would make mine taller. And that did the job, right? I could adjust it to exactly what I needed. So the desk was a non-issue. And then a couple of years later, I got into a different office where there was a truly amazing standing desk that absolutely fit my need. Didn't plug into the wall. You could just a simple lever, pull it up and down to the right height for whatever you wanted. 
And that became something that was so important to me that even when I was offered a better office, I said, if I have to give up this desk, I'd rather have this desk than to have the better office because the design of that met my needs. It made me feel like I could do my work better and then I didn't have to focus on it, right? I could just focus on doing the good work. And that for me was an example of why does design matter? It mattered to have this simple slab of wood that it was at the right height for me where I could think about the actual work I wanted to do. I bring that up because that was important to me. But at the same time, I bring that up. I am reflecting on some experiences I had with you in meetings where you would stop us in a meeting and say, it matters how you design it, what it conveys. And in online courseware, how you'd stop the meeting and say, wait a second, think about this. Think about what we're actually trying to convey to the learners. And so you kind of would halt us and say, wait, let's stop and talk about why the design matters. So I wanted to give you a chance to say, why do you think design matters? Well, design is, it's really in the, the approach to everything that you do. And there's different definitions of design. And depending on the kind of design that you're in, mine is mostly informed by typographic or graphic design, where what is at stake is an objective typographic message. You're not doing art. We are not fine artists. This is not a subjective endeavor where someone can look at a painting that was made or someone can say, oh, you know, two plus two equals three because it turns me on to think so. You know, two plus two must equal four when you're communicating an objective message. So when you're designing in in most senses, like the products that we're doing, or I don't remember the particular example you're referring to, but maybe I felt in that instance that we weren't communicating accurately. So I, I might've been timing us out to kind of go back to that. But to your question, why does design matter? It matters for the reasons that you said a few minutes back when you're talking about how we start a project and we, we kind of jump in very quickly. And the reason we do that is it's that old phrase about the tyranny of the urgent. You know, the starter pistol has gone off. It might've been some program manager and there's deadlines and we're already under pressure to produce. Right. And in our world, we have something, we have a design process that it's the universal design process, but we call it ADDI. It's an acronym A-D-D-I-E. It's consisting of analysis, design, development, implementation, and evaluation. And the dirty little secret in our world is that a lot of the time, we give short shrift to the A and the D, the analysis and design, which is really, in short, it's the thinking portion of the project. It's the approach. It's how we set our approach, how we vet our ideas and, and test them before we really get down deep into development and turn this into a, a factory, a, a whole production endeavor. And so I kind of joke, you know, you take A and D off of that acronym and what do you have left? You have die, you know, mm. uh, the, the project <laughs> uh, begins to die because you're just, you know, you're off the rails at the requirement stage. You have not successfully translated someone's requirement into a 
solution. And that translation process is design. So that is why it's important. And because everything is in the approach, this, you know, we're, we're on a podcast right now, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember us talking about podcasts and I probably told you, like I tell others, is to really get it right in the approach. You have to have a very good sense that there is an audience for what you're doing. Your, you know, your show could be very arcane, very esoteric. It could be about medieval folk dancing. But if you're going to do it, you know, make sure there's an audience for it and really design it for them and put your all into it and make sure that you're creating something that will appeal to that audience. So that really is it. Um, there's other definitions of design, you know, where we're taking, you know, classic textbook stuff is, you know, design is the taking of disparate elements and turning them into a cohesive unit design is it's that other definition about communicating something objective it it varies depending on the discipline a little bit but in all cases it ensures that we have the right approach you know as you were talking and i love how you pointed out with the addy acronym when you take out the a and the d it becomes die <laughs> because for some reason in that conversation when you brought up factory it reminds me that in actual project plans for training products that we created over 10 years ago, maybe 15, it would actually refer to the process as the courseware factory process. And I even think in one person, they had a little picture of a factory. And I think it's important for the purposes of this conversation to remember that an image of a factory in your head, because you realize that oh, that's so interesting. Once you take a process or a framework that's supposed to help you and you kind of six sigma it so much (laughs) that it is producing widgets, Mm -hmm. you do start to default in some ways because it's easier, faster, cheaper, and kind of get stuck with design and not using it anymore and not thinking through it and not realizing that maybe something's changed. Maybe they're losing part of the spirit of design. And that's kind of interesting. It kind of ties into the next question. How does design inspire? How does it spark us? You know, how does it bring up emotions that help us in our lives? Because I know that's something I talk a lot about a lot in the podcast that it's so important for us to have the right emotions in our life, because that means we take all of our action in our work and our life from our emotions and our emotions come from our way of thinking. And so how does design inspire us? If we're turning everything into a factory approach, we get so good at processes that we stop that analysis and we stop really thinking about design. We're kind of taking that emotion out of something. And I really love this quote from Tim Brown. He's the CEO of IDEO. And he says, good design successfully manages tensions. Uh, And when he talks about the tensions, he's talking about the user needs, the technical feasibility, the viability, the functional performance, but also the emotional performance. And I don't know why, but the first thing I thought of when I read this question and this quote from Tim Brown about good design successfully managing tensions I was reminded of a purchase I made when I was in college and it was 
a shirt, a polo shirt from a very famous brand. So I thought, (laughs) but the minute I got the shirt and I felt the fabric in an instant, I was like, wait a second, this is not the real brand. This is a knockoff. It was that it was kind of like that Malcolm Gladwell, I think in his book, Blink, how he says experts can tell in an instant whether something is the fraud or it's the original. Yeah, it's like the old, if you want to spot counterfeit money, study real money. Yeah, right. And this was a Ralph, it was supposed to be a Ralph Lauren, but in an instant, I knew it was not. And to notice my emotions, how they changed. So I'm like, this is not as cool. No, no. as I thought, and I didn't know it until I touched the fabric. And then when I saw it that way, I, I, I saw it completely differently. The shirt was not the same as the other shirts that I had. It felt different when I had it on. There were so many things and it was so subtle, but that's the first thing I thought of. And I was like, how does design inspire? Well, for some reason, that brand had a certain meaning to me. And I was used to a certain fabric and cut, and it wasn't that. It was off. And so it did evoke an emotion from me that I wasn't expecting. So I wanted to find out from you, you know, we've talked all, you know, why it matters, but do you have moments that you remember in design that have really inspired you, whether it's work or a physical item or just a thought a design thought that you've had that truly inspired you in some way or changed something that you chose to do. So let me go back a couple of beats because there was so much there. It's funny that you mentioned Six Sigma, which some have called codifying mediocrity. Mm. Uh, It's one of these, you know, we always have this phenomenon happen where there's this new thing where everyone has to learn it and become certified and all the smart kids know something. <laughs> yes. Now that's very, very pejorative. Obviously, it's really, really important if you're Boeing and the, uh, I don't know what they call it, but the the mills or whatever it is uh, of a you know sheet of aircraft metal has to be just the right thinness or thickness that's something that is so tightly codified, right? Yes. But in another endeavor, it could just beat the spirit out of what you're doing. I think of like a um, a director, like to do a compare and contrast, a film director, like a, a Stanley Kubrick who will make Shelley Duvall do 150 takes in, in the movie The Shining until she's having a nervous breakdown versus... Mm. Someone like Clint Eastwood, who's more, he's a jazz musician and he takes a jazz approach to filmmaking where like, hey, let's try this. We'll do a take or two. And uh, he usually calls it good after uh, a couple of takes. I don't even know if he rehearses and he comes in on time or, or ahead of schedule and under budget and the studios love him. And, uh, you know, instead of having this uh, overly planned approach, it's really rather organic. Another analog to that would be in the writing realm. You've got like two top authors. You've got James Patterson, who is a an outliner. He outlines to death before he renders the scenes by, by actually sitting down to write the scenes versus a Stephen King, who is 
a seat of the pantser, as we call it in writing. He doesn't know where he's going to go. He's got a vague idea, but he just starts writing. Very, very interesting. Hmm. Just radically different approaches. All of them are design-based. All of them take a different process approach. And who's to say which one is right or wrong? There are pros and cons. And as the artist or designer or developer, you've got to figure out what works for you. So anyway, I just wanted to kind of hit those notes because I thought it was it was interesting and and because you you hit on something that spoke to how you can kind of really lose the soul of design or the the uh, inspiration behind it. But to your immediate question, when I was beginning to really steep myself in design, I found is just the way I'm put together. I really. In this realm, I really had to understand how it worked. I was not content with just being an intuitive designer. There are some very wonderful intuitive designers. They have no idea about, (laughs) they don't know much about design rules. And there are a lot of rules Mm -hmm. of design that are very objective. They have in, so in, let's say graphic design, they have a lot to do with things like alignment and proximity and the way you group things and the way you you create visual hierarchies and many, many other concepts and principles. And so for me, it, I needed to understand how it worked. And as I absorbed the principles, I found that that inspired me It it encouraged me. I knew that what I was doing worked and I understood why it worked. The other thing that inspired me were examples. It's good to have heroes. Um, I discovered a mentor in someone who, uh, sadly he passed away very young, but a, a designer named Hillman Curtis who came on the scene, uh, just at the advent of the web revolution with, uh, some of the technologies that were a- a- allowing for, motion design. And there was a whole renaissance in that. And he helped open the door f- for me to look back to old examples, a lot of them film film and corporate identity examples in figures like Saul Bass. Saul Bass, you may not know the name, but you've probably seen his work in the opening of uh, many uh, an Alfred Hitchcock film or Otto Preminger or many other things, but you'd know Saul Bass's work in things like the AT&T logo. He also produced the Girl Scouts logo, many, many things. Um, So from people like him or other luminaries that designers know about, Paul Rand, by the way, not to be confused with Rand Paul, that's a politician. I'm talking about Paul Rand, so it's a flip-flop of the names, who in addition to being a great designer, he kind of changed the process, the way designers and art directors get joined at the hip to work with each other. Uh, Milton Glaser, many, many heroes who showed and were exemplars of the approach to design, the elegance of design, how the best solutions use the least elements to yield the most effect. All of those were very, very important to me. And I found that design is, it's a, it's, you know, how deep does the rabbit hole go? It's, it's um, very intellectually challenging and it, it very quickly shows you the, the limits of your, your talent. It's very, very humbling. Uh, I know I'm very 
maybe skilled or talented in some areas and I feel like a miserable failure in other areas because it's a it's a domain with subdomains and you can't be great at everything and we're not all Saul Basses. But the final thing that inspired me were just the examples all around us. The one thing that all designers have to cultivate is the skill of absorption. You want to have your eyes open all the time. You want to look for good examples of design in the world around you. When you're walking down the street or leafing through a magazine, do people read magazines anymore? We used to have these things made of ground paper pulp um, (laughs) or, you know, watching television commercials and just be kind of uh, an assimilator and bring it in, digest it, look at it sort of the way a car mechanic puts your vehicle up on the lift and you sort of see how things work or it looks in the hood. Uh, You want to understand what is operating in it and what makes it a good design, what makes it work. So it's a combination of all the above, the best examples, what the better designers do. It's a lot of learning, learning, learning. All of that, at least for me in my path, all of those together were the things that got me really kind of like high, you know, in terms of inspiration and motivation and sort of that euphoria that you have when you're kind of in the zone and doing your best work. You know, as you were speaking, I was reminded of a moment that I actually learned from you a few years ago where you were talking about the importance of font. And I never had really thought about it before, but, you know, as you were talking, I'm remembering, yes, like there's certain simple, small details like the font that's selected that evokes a certain emotion of inspiration or not, right? Like I can think of times when I've looked at something and have realized, oh, that does not resonate with me. That's too crafty or that's too flowing of a font, right? The words flow together so much, I can't even read what the word is. And to realize how, even though so much of design seems subjective, there is, like you were mentioning, these very objective underlying elements that must be thought through because they they do impact um, how we view certain products or the world, that kind of thing. Yeah, now I'm going to be annoyingly priggish and correct you that it's, uh, I prefer the word typeface to font. Fonts are, the, you know, uh, the common <laughs> right. word. But the reason why I like typeface is because it has the word face in it. And faces are personalities. And I think what you're driving at is, it's just another, it's a, you can make a good or poor design decision. Let's say you are a, a company that wants to look um, clean and Spartan and, you know, all those kinds of uh, often corporate type of things. You're, you're probably not going to choose Comic Sans or some calligraphic uh, or, you know, uh, German black letter type of typeface or, you know, it would just be the wrong visual language, right? You're going to be looking for the yes. the Helveticas of the world or things like that. So yeah, totally. And I, I think about it in terms of the way playwrights or people putting on a, something theatrical, they think of orchestration. And that's the idea of how different elements combine. And so every single choice is important. So in this case, a typeface, it's got to work with all your other messaging, yes, right? Because if they're in conflict, you really spot it. That's why like we watch some movies and you're like, man, was that person miscast? And it was really to the detriment of the production Yes. or 
or or sometimes like you know they were good in it, but like sometimes it's obvious things. Uh, this person's like the wrong age for that role, or um, yes. you know. And then you sometimes you learn behind the scenes. You know, if you're like a Turner classic movies buff, you you know sometimes like they couldn't get the person they wanted, and this was their last choice, and so that that explains why it was uh, suboptimal casting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I, I think what you're speaking to carries a, a, a lot. You, all the choices matter. And then in combination, you can, you've got chemistry. And then when it's really working well, you've got alchemy where it's just really magical how everything works together. Well, and, and that kind of brings me back to another point you brought up in your answer that how we make design was the next question I was going to ask, right? What the process is. And you kind of touched upon this and shared examples from different directors and writers and screenwriters, or you you know the right words for these things. I don't, but to show that some are very process driven, followed this outline and perfected it while someone else like Stephen King just does the shoot from the hip and he gets started because as he gets started, he gets the inspiration he needs to get to an end point. And if we ask the question, how do we make design what the process is? Some of us with our background might say, okay, you use the instructional design process, but to kind of realize through that experience of going through a process and then learning another process, perhaps like an agile process or waterfall or these different processes that are out there for systems design or instructional design, these kinds of things that you learn to choose or perhaps have wisdom along the way to know when to stick to the process and when to break free of the process and allow it to be a little bit messy because maybe in the messy, you'll get some new ideas or a new way to approach a problem. One of the things that I enjoyed in this book about design is that someone named Hugh Dubberly, he has a design firm, mentioned how one of the gaps in following the design process is the feedback loop. There's feedback loops in a lot of other disciplines, but often there isn't a formal feedback loop when it comes to design. And unless you purposely decide to get feedback toward improving the design, you are going to just keep outputting the same things. I think people like Steve Jobs and some of these other designers are good examples of this, right? They want to get it out there. They want you to have this great experience, but they also want to take the feedback and do something with it and keep refining and keep improving something. And not just incremental improvements sometimes. Sometimes it's the complete change of how people use an object, right? Like when you hear about how we all used cassette tapes and then the guy... I wish I had his name handy, but he was on the airplane and he brought his whole cassette recorder like onto the plane. And he's like, wait a second, there's got to be an easier way. And from that came a whole different idea of Walkman. And then how Steve Jobs kind of took it a step further to go, wait a second, we want more than the cassettes or the CDs we carry. We want access to music we love and like completely changing it up in another way. Yeah. And so- They went kind of outside of a process a little bit, but also were persistent at getting feedback from real users 
Yeah, there's a lot in what you said. I'm going to interrupt real quick because I'm like right. digesting. Famously, Steve Jobs is attributed with saying that real artists ship, mm. meaning because I think you said that about getting it out there. So right. you have an audience and a marketplace that can push and pull on it. He begins, someone like Steve Jobs does begin with taking something and looking at it from odd angles and new ways and completely rethinking the music. The music industry, for example, was about selling pieces of plastic, right? Whether they were oh, yes. vinyl records, you know, uh, the old licorice pizza, as the DJs called it, <laughs> or then we had the CDs, but we were selling physical product. And yet we lived in an age where you could listen to music in, you know, the digital ether. You didn't need physicality. And this led to other considerations like, well, you know, if it doesn't have a physical aspect of it, this causes you to rethink what you're selling and the distribution implications and all these different things. It led to being able to just buy your favorite song instead of an album that has, you know, a lot of filler songs on it. And uh, it's, it was very, very disruptive and some musicians are still licking their wounds from it. Other people adapt. Other people find other sources of revenue, like actually performing in front of audiences. And so, yeah, I just love the reinvention of a Steve Jobs and him getting something out there. So it's also not entirely in a vacuum. There is going to be kind of this marketplace participation that informs the next version of something. I hope I didn't get you off track, but I uh, that no. part that you said triggered that whole thing to me. Well, actually, this leads beautifully into the next question, I think, because it's how does tech change design? And you touched upon this, you know, using the music industry going into a different business right? <laughs> than sending physical objects. You get, you really get to focus on music and what you're offering. And it, it's getting to the people in a different way. And I think right now we're experiencing a huge shift for a lot of the population as we've gone through this pandemic where thank goodness for technology but at the same time, those of us who have been in the training and development world for a long time know that online learning is old and we're real experienced with creating it and delivering it. And yet the rest of the world suddenly had to jump into it. And it really exposed how technology can change design because I know a lot of teachers that I'm connected to on Facebook and in different parts of life were complaining and saying it was so hard. And some parents were saying that online learning is terrible. <laughs> like this is the worst thing ever. We must be in the classroom and to be able to have conversations with them and go, listen, technology doesn't solve problems necessarily in and of itself. It's how you use the technology. It's how you design the use of the technology to fit your need. And so in the cases of people all of a sudden going to online schooling that were not familiar with it, they were trying to take perhaps a classroom experience and plop it into the technology. And those of us that are in the actual online training and development world go, uh, hold on, <laughs> it's not a physical classroom. This is a different experience. We still want you to learn, obviously. You still want to have some of the similar learning outcomes, but we need to design this differently 
to meet the need. And I pulled another quote. I like pulling these little quotes from smart people, right? But from Autodesk CEO, Carl Bass, he said, the problem of the computer is it's the systemic generation of useless alternatives. <laughs> and I think both of us have experienced that on the job, right? Like there is this need to always find the latest and greatest technology, not realizing that just because we purchased a system or a technology tool, our problem wasn't necessarily going to be solved unless we figured out how to leverage that technology in a way that actually helped us perform better or met some kind of need. And, and so I think that's something that you've brought up in prior conversations too, that with technology, there comes a change to design, but it also puts that every man, a publisher concept out there, right? Like now that we all have technology, what are we going to do with it? In fact, that reminds me of another quote from Dean Kamen. Now that we can do anything, what should we do? <laughs> so when I mentioned every man, a publisher, I was kind of thinking, oh, Anthony's got some thoughts about this because you are someone that has published so much. You've used the tools, you've decided which tools to use for which design for your books, your podcasts, uh, movies, even your music, that kind of thing. So can you talk to us a little bit about this idea that every man's a publisher and what you've done in that arena? Yeah. So, you know, this goes to the democratization of tools. People have access to the means of production. And so the big liberating concept that has been expressed, you know, you mentioned Seth Godin earlier. He's been a good advocate of this for many years is the idea of stop asking permission, just give yourself permission and and do it. You don't really need to seek validation from publishers necessarily. It's not, I mean, if you want to go through a publisher, that's fine. There is a, a validating thing about that when some third party says, hey, this is objectively good and we want to publish it and have our brand behind it. On the other hand, you know, it's an exercise in saying, mother, may I? And it's playing the game of maybe just, you know, ending up on someone's slush pile when your thing really does have merit, but there aren't the eyes to see that merit. And you do know, you may know you have an audience for what you're doing. So just do it and cut out the, all the middlemen. So every man, a publisher, really means cut out the middleman, stop saying, mother, may I, and start doing. What comes with that, though, is, you know, responsibility and, and self-drive and kind of the grit and determination to bust through obstacles to do it. I imagine when you began your podcast, you had to overcome hurdles. Some of them were probably, I don't know, I'll ask you, I'm going to ask you a question back. Did you have psychological hurdles and technical hurdles when you were approaching this whole enterprise of starting a podcast? Yeah, I think it's, I'm glad you brought up the mental hurdles. I think that was the biggest hurdle. Like, who am I to be doing this? And, oh, it's so hard. And even though I knew you and maybe a couple other people, but you were in my mind as someone who had done podcasts and you go, okay, well, they've done it, but they're really good at this stuff. So maybe there's a rocket science you know, component to this that I haven't discovered. But once I decided, I think I made a deadline one day where I'm like, just knock it out, Rebecca, just do it this week. I went to YouTube, learned how to use Audacity because I hadn't used it in years. I got onto a site and chose some music 
a very specific process, right? Narrowed down to 20 songs, then to 10, then to five, then to one or two, tested that music with my voice. Instead of choosing to produce one episode that week, I ended up doing five because I was like, wait, I figured out the process. I'm just going to keep doing it. (laughs) I see the thing with you. I just want to forgive me for interrupting, but I want to stop you there because you said the phrase, who am I to do this? There's this self-doubt that you have to overcome. Mm -hmm. Will people look at me as like a naked emperor trying to do this thing? And there is that concern. And you you certainly, you know, it's the basic public speaking advice that, you know, the, the best public speaking advice of all is to have a command of your subject matter. because And that really allays 90% of your fears. You're not so much worried about people looking at you or what you look like. You're in command of your material and you can state it with a measure of authority. And, you know, that authority only builds the more and better you become at expressing it. It does, yeah, it does help to have some credentials and, and things like that. But in certain realms, you know, we do fake it until we make it. It could be starting a new job and, you know, you start somewhere when, you know, as a very junior employee, mm-hmm. it's an act of becoming and overcoming those fears. And that kind of translates into this realm where you, you pick up the tools and you say, hey, I think, I think I can write a book or I think I can produce a podcast or fill in the blank. Yes. Now, I would say this, there's the one caveat, and this is not popular necessarily for those who ascribe to participation trophies and all that kind of stuff. There is a factor called talent. Not everyone is either talented in an area or they're just not comfortable in a certain medium. Right. So they may have aspirations, but they're, they're not going to make it. It's like the, the harshest, cruelest gong show version of this is, uh, well, the, there's, there's the gong show, but yeah. there's also like those American Idol auditions where uh, sometimes the people who are, you know, the tone deaf ones, they, they don't really realize that they they don't have the the talent for it. Uh, hopefully, like self-aware people will come to a realization like, eh, this isn't really my thing. They'll try it. And somewhere, and t- to name another Seth Godin book, Sticking or Quitting, mm-hmm. um, you know, you got to try things and then you've, you've got to decide whether you stick or you quit. Right. And that could be for a variety of reasons. One of them may be this is not playing to my strengths. I have different strengths. And then you discover it by expending energy that kind of went down the rat hole for you uh, or the opposite effect, you know? So those are just some other things to, to think about when you, you know, you're, you're trying something new. Am I comfortable in the medium? Am I good at it? And uh, really ask yourself those questions. Well, this brings up so many different thoughts about design. And so, for example, you know, when you were talking about how it's democratized, everybody has access to the technology in all parts of the world now. And, you know, that increases the opportunity for a lot of junk to get out there. Because like you're saying, it's just not a strength of everyone to design particular things. But it also means that in that process, it becomes something that's not a solo act. If you really want to get good at designing things that evoke emotion, that help meet needs, that help people perform better, solve real problems, 
the team is so important and the ability to ask for feedback. And so when you use an example from something like American Idol, where someone gets on there who's tone deaf, you start to look at that and go, okay, is this someone who has a lot of confidence? They know they're tone deaf and they just use this as a chance to get into the limelight. Or is this someone that didn't bother to listen to people's feedback or did not solicit people's feedback? And then you kind of question what kind of people were they around? Were they around people like the naked emperor that you mentioned? The naked emperor had tons of people around him, but none of them were willing to tell him the truth until someone was. (laughs) And when they finally find out the truth, they're in the worst possible situation, two children, saying, hey, that emperor's naked and he's out there in front of his whole country or whatever it is in the story, right? He could have been told this by his manager inside the castle or whatever, right? He could have resolved this long before he got to the point where it was out in the world. And so there's so many great principles to draw from this, right? The importance of soliciting feedback, the importance of getting real helpful insightful, honest feedback from people Oh yeah. toward improving the design, like let go of the ego and go, we're really here to improve the design. Let's be clear. You need to surround yourself with good friends Yes, and good friends will hurt you. Yes. You know, to quote the Proverbs, um, the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. Mm. Right. Right. And that's why people actually should read books that endure and stand the test of time. There's a lot of wisdom there and they will protect you from worse things. Like if you find yourself to be the naked emperor in some setting, pretty horrible. I was just talking to someone the other day about Elvis. You know, he had this, uh, they called it the Memphis Mafia. He had all these friends around him and yet he was just self-destructing. And I don't know to what degree he had the really, really good friends to uh, stop that implosion where, you know, he's dead at 42, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I'm a Elvis ophile. So I, th- that came to mind, uh-huh. but yeah, surrounding yourself with good friends, but more to the point. So like, I, th- I remember telling you like, Hey, um, like I wanted to encourage you to try the podcasting thing. I don't know if I, I, I probably said to you, Hey, why don't you just make stuff for your ears only? Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of pressure off yes. and you can just listen to it and say, is it good enough? It doesn't have to be perfect. And I can start a little bit raw and get better as I go. There's, you know, there's editing chops that you're developing. There's uh, the, the writing and if there's scripting involved, there's all kinds of mm-hmm. components to this, depending on what your show is like. Right. But do that. You might have other people listen to it and give you feedback, but you want the friends that are willing to hurt you to help you, right? Yes. You got to be cruel to be kind, right? <laughs> well, and, and that's reminding me, well, this is such a great conversation, right? It just brings up so many different thoughts, but there was this quote that I, or this phrase that I read in this book that I keep referencing, and it's institutional acupuncture to figure out where business logic is congested and not flowing properly. And I love the quote because I immediately took it personally, right? Like being willing to take a look at yourself and go, where do I need to think through this differently? Where do I need to ask for feedback? Where do I need to give feedback in order for the outcome to be something that's actually useful and valuable to those involved? And part of this conversation, I think, is once everybody has access to technology 
and to be able to design something that they have in their mind. I think for those of us that are in the design world in some shape or form could start to think possibly, oh no, where does my role go? And to realize that there's always a role for someone as long as we're taking that hard look at ourselves, right? Performing that acupuncture, getting unstuck and going, okay, my role as a designer may look different going forward, but doesn't mean that all of my experience and expertise aren't still needed. And it kind of plays to some of the changes in the past, right? You're a movie buff. And to note that, you know, what the theaters were going through when VHS and CDs and DVDs and all these things were introduced. People thought theaters may go away. Well, they didn't. There's still a role for them, even though we still had access to things in a different way. And to understand that as the designer, this could be an opportunity to use the expertise to teach other people about how to design and how to make decisions and that kind of thing. That You may not be the person always giving that input, but you can help inform this broad audience that now has the tools on how they can use the tools to perform the design function. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, there's a lot there. Well, I'm, you know, I'm thinking about um, the theaters. I'm thinking about shopping malls. I'm thinking about creative destruction where, um, and we were just talking a a little earlier about music and what happened to music. And uh, so sometimes, you know, these, the tools are, we're in an age of disruption. The tools change And uh, we're going to have to find new and creative uses for things like shopping malls, which may turn into, uh, you know, the composition may be different. There may be a lot of professional offices and doctor's offices. There may not be all the anchor stores like Sears, Mm -hmm. right? There certainly isn't a Sears Roebuck catalog and there certainly isn't an outhouse to use it in. <laughs> Sorry, I had to fit that in. But uh, I think it it all goes to creative destruction mm-hmm. and how the thing that transcends all this is design. And you can take the principles and the, the tools and apply it to things that are either changing or dying or have to be reinvented, rethought. So I don't know if I'm answering your question or triggering any new thoughts, but that's kind of where I was going based on what you were just saying. Yeah, I think that it's an interesting thing to take a look at. And especially as moving forward, the discipline of design isn't just, for example, taking design classes, (laughs) right? To realize we're in a world now where we're looking at whole system design, Mm -hmm. where I know if you look at an example of like a building, you're wanting to look at all the parts of architecture and engineering and the cost of it and all that, but you also want to see where the building is in relation to the environment, right? So you could look at this, Zillow is a perfect example, right? You look at this beautiful home on Zillow and then you go look at it in person and realize, well, all the pictures were beautiful, but they didn't show what was right next to the house. They conveniently shared certain things And now I see where it's located and I'm thinking, no way, doesn't matter how beautiful it is. It's right next to a factory, the railroad track, whatever. Like, and to see that when we think we have to think holistically about the design and the context of the broader world and to really pay attention to a lot more than we would in the past. I know something you had touched upon this, but all the different things that go into thinking through design and how you know, we were talking about technology and the changes take place with that, but also being aware of 
psychology and communications theory and economics and the social sciences. Someone also brought up the idea of reflection, making reflection more a part of our work and our life so that we can actually open up the mind up to these different design ideas. Yeah, especially in an educational context to kind of bring it home to some of our audience. Uh, This conversation will be heard on your show, but also on The Learning Circle, which is the show I produce about learning and design in a learning context. But yeah, room for reflection. I think we're learning that, I think we always knew it, but this idea of going to a class and drinking from the fire hose of lecture for eight hours a day, and then there is that forgetting curve, which is obvious, you're not going to retain it all, and learning how to redesign that. Thankfully, our industry has been catching up to that and finding Mm -hmm. new ways. Part of it's how technology has made it easier and more configurable to meet out the pieces of, if it's knowledge acquisition, you know, even, you know, just your operating low on Bloom's taxonomy, where it's sort of the knowledge recall stuff. And, you know, being careful about how you put that out there so that it can be retained and digested, it can be performed, it can be practiced, it can be recalled. I had a great conversation with Dr. Carl Kopp, who is famous for gamification, and then more recently with microlearning. And he tells like a great story about just how, again, it was just a tweak to the design of the learning they were creating a course that was it was meant to give micro learning pieces to diabetics and there was kind of a compare and contrast and it had to do with i believe texts that were sent over time after mm. some initial training and there were either reminders or questions or or something that caused them to engage more and to remind them more and just the, the retention was much much better And it's, you know, sometimes it's just a little act of design, a retweak. It doesn't have to be as big and heavy as what you were describing a few moments back about the whole, like the context. I mean, we do want to be aware of the context. Like you began with the real estate example of where, you know, obviously location and other factors are, are what account for a house just sitting forever on the listings and not moving. And um, thankfully, we operate for a while where most of the context has been figured out by smarter people and we're kind of working Mm -hmm. within a paradigm and our task is smaller as to how do we create this particular widget within that this new paradigm that the smart people figured out for us, whether that was having a a podcast ecosystem or creating eBooks and things like that. But yeah, to your earlier point, we do want to understand context, and uh, I, li- I liked what you said, just kind of latching back to uh, that thing you said about designers teaching other designers. That, that's very, very important. I think there, you know, we, we, things are changing so much that we're not, just, we're, we're not working from a static playbook anymore. So if you're learning something new, let's say it's, uh, I mentioned eBooks earlier. Uh, it might take someone who's a little smarter about the whole purpose and benefit of ebooks to tell someone who's about to design one 
to say, for example, hey, you know, this is not a physical book. Keep that in mind. And you're not being paid by the pound. It doesn't have to take up physical shelf space in a store if you're only doing an ebook. So mm -hmm. why don't you just write the 50-page business book and charge two ninety nine instead of justifying your existence by doing the bloated business book where every principle becomes a, a whole chapter with stories and stories and stories, or the diet book where half of it is a cookbook just to bloat it and, and, and hit the 250-page mm -hmm. count and then do the hardback edition. That is an example of where things are changing and we have to talk to each other a lot because I think to get the most out of all these media that we're kind of accosted with, and it's hard enough to learn how to do it, let alone do it strategically, we, we need a lot of help from each other. So mm -hmm. I, I like what you said. Uh, we we kind of need kind of mutual mentorship happening, especially now. It's just things are moving too quickly. Now, as you're talking about this, I... I'm thinking about a very obvious example going on in my life right now. After having worked for corporations and the government for so many years and stepping out on my own, I'm in different circles of people, right? So like, as we're talking about, it matters who you surround yourself with friends that are honest, open, and, you know, share with you the ideation process or whatever and design. And in the different circle of people, I am around a lot of entrepreneurs and to see the different place that they operate from when they design something, right? They have fewer constraints most of the time, or they perceive themselves as having fewer constraints. Maybe that's what it is because when you're in a corporation or in the government, there's I don't know how to describe it, except that there's a lot of information. Like even as well, I... It, it is also I, I, what I'm thinking, I'm forgive me for interrupting, there's too many middlemen again. It's, yes. a, it's too much mother may I. Right. And when it's a bureaucracy of one, it's not a bureaucracy and you're empowered and right. you can just execute on your ideas. The only thing holding you back is what we talked about before are the, the psychological hurdles, the self-management. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's a very different paradigm. That's why I think it's important to learn how to function that way very sort of autonomously as much as you can, even in a corporate setting. Yes. And that means having to bust some norms, get out of the meetings, get out of these things that suck your energy and destroy focus, because it's also all about focus. If you can't hold a magnifying glass under the sun for a sustained enough amount of time, nothing's going to catch fire. Mm. Yeah, that's a great example, because you know, it's amazing to see and interact with people who have really, like you said, there's no middleman. And so they start to think everything's possible. They try things. I know I had a family member move from New Jersey out West and they said, everybody has a side gig out here, <laughs> whether it's building an extra room on the garage to have, you know, to cut hair or chickens where you sell the eggs to your neighbors or you, even in the online world, so many people I'm connected to, they create a very simple little product. So they extract all this extra information that makes us feel smart, but it actually doesn't help us perform better. And they say, okay, I'm going to teach you in three steps how to, like you said, do an ebook. I'm going to show you in five steps how to create this marketing campaign or whatever. And it's very simple, straightforward technology. Their operating costs are probably a couple hundred bucks a month. 
And yet they're bringing in a lot of money because they've designed something that meets people's needs simply. I mean, this is kind of like the how-to YouTube videos, right? The 10 minutes, you don't care if the quality of the actual recording is high. You care about, hey, they gave me the five steps I need to take to change the tire or to replace this wall or to create this document, right? They get down to the essential. In fact, we've talked about this before, right? The constant stripping away and reducing the design to what is actually needed to help the person do whatever it is they need to do. And it's been very enlightening to be as part of this. And at the same time, also consulting with clients that are in organizations in the government where you can tell from the thinking and the thought processes that, oh, there's so much information they're getting overwhelmed by. How can I help simplify that for them? And that becomes a design solution in and of itself, right? To help people in their work, just get down to the core of what's needed for them to do. Yeah. All this yeah. I like there's a, there's a lot in there. I'm kind of breaking back in. Forgive me, but there's a lot in there. You're supposed to interrupt um, me, by the way. <laughs> okay. It's my job to interrupt yes. you. Um, you know what it is? It's before you drop so many big, heady concepts that I, I don't know what to tackle right. because there's, there's every, one thing leads to another. I need to design I like this you better, said, don't I? <laughs> no, no, no. I, well, I like what you said about how you need those people to demystify and de-junk processes where they're like, you know what? It's like three things you need to do. I remember listening to, I'm forgetting the name of the guy. He was very popular about 20 years ago when we needed him on the internet scene. And he was good at like, he was very uh, experimental and was one of the pioneers of, of blogging and doing uh, daily videos and things like that. And he, I remember him saying at first it, it was a, an affront to my professional pride because I knew the depths of certain tools, but he said, listen, Photoshop is just a, a cropping tool, you know? And, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, well, he's got a lot of nerve. I, 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 it's, I worked really hard to learn how to do curves adjustments and levels and, uh, and all the, the really like, you know, deep technical, uh, things in, in Photoshop and, uh, you know, color separation and things like that for printing and all, all these different things. And, and, uh, he's just calling it a, a cropping tool, but mm -hmm. his point was you need to demystify things quickly and kind of jump in. And the truth in that is that as complicated as Photoshop is and can be, most people have a finite number of things that they do with it. And even though you're presented with eight ways to do it, you're going to probably take two or maybe just one way, uh, one pathway to get it done in the tool. So right. it's very important to just find the path, find the shortcuts, and it's better to do and fix later than to sit in analysis paralysis and get nothing done. Right. Yeah, that's, that's so good. <laughs> I know that... Um... You know, there is that professional pride. Is that what you called it? Yeah. Professional pride. And that's, that's part of this discussion. I'm hoping that comes out to show that, you know, we are in a world of constant change, constant opportunity, constant opportunity to learn if we so choose and monitor and adjust ourselves. And some of us are choosing to go through this process of growth and 
I'd encourage anyone listening to constantly go through that self-assessment and desire to grow because you never know, like the thing that you do best might still be in the process of being invented. And I think some of us wish that what we know now about learning and technology and design was available to us while we were in college or before then, because then we would have figured out what we wanted to do with our lives a little bit earlier, perhaps. But, oh my, yeah, if only, yeah. if only, I know. Right. I wish I had a head start. There's a whole lot I wish I had had a head start on. At the same time, all of the experiences lend itself to helping you be a better designer and offering up better things. One of the things I've been thinking a lot about, and it's kind of tied to this discussion, we talked about you know listening to others' inputs and being part of a team and influencing, is this idea that as we go forward with design, um, making sure that we do interact with people that are interested in design, interested in making changes and seeing what's out there. Like there's a wealth of design options that still haven't been discovered or put together in different ways. And how sometimes when we look to perhaps find new work or business or step into making more money or that kind of thing, we can often make decisions to make the quick buck or to get the quick title or whatever. And to realize that going, if we want to truly move forward and get solutions to things, we're not going to be approaching things from that kind of mindset where we want to quickly get to a resolution or quickly get that pay raise or big idea. So for example, recently I've helped a few people go after business with the government. So they're responding to these proposals really quickly. And they're trying to get out as many of these responses as possible, hoping that somebody picks them, so to speak. Right? And it's very painful to be part of because you look at it and go, this isn't where you're strong. This is not one of your true care capabilities, but you're going after it just because there's some money available that you want to have. And instead, if they rolled back and said, wait, what are we truly good at? Where can we help people or organizations have better solutions? We can take a step back, thoughtfully create something for them or propose an approach that would really help them. And it may be small, but it could grow because we are approaching it from the right mindset. We're approaching it from our current capabilities. And we are going to seek to work with clients that have that same kind of mindset. And as I was going through this experience, I was reading how going forward in the world of design, you wouldn't just be seeking money or a certain project. You would be seeking to leverage certain clients, clients that already think the way that you do as far as wanting to be innovative and creative and they're yeah. wanting to make radical change and they're curious and they're smart and open to innovation. So I think that's an interesting part of this conversation, especially in the world of learning and growth and performing at work, like to recognize, oh, as we move forward, we may accept different opportunities than we would have in the past because we're seeking different things. Yeah. We're not where we were at before. We're mm -hmm. going to be in a different place in the future. There's other concepts that came up in what you were saying. 
picking the right clients. Um, I think what I heard you touching on is making sure you're picking the right clients, also not getting into projects or things that don't play to your strengths. Right. I love the book by Al Reese. Al Reese famous for his books on advertising. Mm. He wrote the book Positioning. My favorite book by him, though, is called Focus. Oh. Uh, the future of your company depends upon it. And it's just filled with examples. You almost like can just kind of like read the first couple of chapters and put it down. But it's uh, it's a good book <laughs> to be sought out because it's just filled with cautionary tales about companies who they start expanding product lines for no good reason. Or when we had that whole trend back in, I think it was the 80s, it was all portfolio and diversifying companies were getting into businesses that they had no business being in. And what it did was diffuse them, diffuse their energies, and they wind up you know, selling the thing off at a loss some years later. It's the same thing that can happen as a solopreneur. It's the same thing that can happen in you know teams and things like that. You have to identify your strengths and play to them. Mm -hmm. And so you know, focus is very, very important. So I guess related to that is also just staying focused on the work that you set out to do, that you wanted to do, that plays to your strengths. And if it does have anything to do with design, you're bringing your best thoughts and ideas and energies to it. So yeah, focus is very, very important. You know, I love that having gone through this <laughs> by choice in the last couple of years, right? Deciding to switch it up. And it's very interesting to go through the process. Once you make a choice to focus, offer up your best work and move forward, you take a lot of risks and you have to think about things differently than you did before, right? Coming from an environment that you, you're still in this environment, I'm assuming, where there's lots of meetings, there's lots of decisions that must be made every day. You make those decisions based upon the external and internal politics of an organization, the money, the timeframes, you base it upon the, like design, right? You decide which parts of design you're going to keep, which you aren't based upon the level of effort that's involved and the maintenance involved and these kinds of things. And you're very used to a certain title being known for certain expertise. And then you leave that and make a choice to combine your skills and your strengths in different ways. And there's a drastic shift in your mindset as you are very vulnerable and don't have the same measures of success, perhaps, to look at. And you get to experiment if you choose and go, oh, I want to try this. And then you try it and you're like, it doesn't resonate quite in the same way it used to. Maybe I need to try this. And I know I was going to step away from a lot of learning and development and some of the instructional design stuff, but realized I just needed a temporary break to explore different things. And now I get to come back to it with more information, right? More understanding of different ways things work and to come back to it with a fresh viewpoint where all of the past skills and experiences are honored at the same time, figuring out how to focus in on hone in on no kidding. What is the best use of my time? What is the most value that I offer? And that is 
it's actually something I offer to clients I work with, right? Like, how do you design your life and your work so that you are in a position to offer up the best to whatever you contribute to? And that is a design process all in and of itself, right? <laughs> to design that. Yeah, that really is true. And what you said brings us sort of full circle back to mm-hmm. something we said in the beginning about how you, you took a break from learning for a while, but you got to drink from other wells or do other things or be able to inform the work afresh when you come back to it, because now you have new experiences, new perspectives, you've acquired new knowledge or training. It's very, very important to do that. The, one of the people who models that very well, I've had her on the show a few times, is Julie Dirksen. She's the author of design for how people learn. Mm. And the reason why I was very much gravitated toward her approach is that she's just, um, you know, she's a lover of the L&D world, but at the same time, not satisfied with it. So she goes out to other disciplines and finds what's missing and fills in the gaps and writes great books that bring in you know, whether it's things on brain science, which she's very interested in, mm-hmm. or other things. For for me, uh, I was always someone to kind of go out to other realms. Like, like I was never happy with the excuse in the learning and development world for our products. We, we have this term called, oh, it's just a page turner. Yes. Um, these products are page turners. It's a pejorative term. It's a it's a negative assessment of our products that, oh, they're boring. Um, page turners re- refer to the typical form that online learning is taken where it's a book metaphor and you're, you have pretty pictures and text and you turn pages. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the irony of it all is that the vast overwhelming use of the term page turner is a compliment. You, when you go buy a book, an actual book, not a book metaphor in e-learning, if you're reading a review from Kirkus Reviews saying, this book is taught, gripping, a page turner, you know that it's a great book. Mm-hmm. Why can't our products be page turners? Why are we making excuses for our bad writing? Right. Uh, why, why is it that we can't engage learners with text? Why are we tricking out our products with all the ornaments and gimmickry of multimedia and video and gamification and and guess what? A lot of learners are still bored. Yes. There's something wrong. And so that's why we have to get out of our closed systems and go to new wells, get the bad air out, bring the heretics into the temple mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of shake things up. So it's very, very, very important, especially with design, because there's a lot of orthodoxy. It's all dressed up as in academies and it's supposed to be you know, doctrine and dogma, but it's a bunch of hogwash and it doesn't work. And uh, that's why people are bored with the product. So I think, um, I think we're learning and and correcting some of this, but boy, it takes a long time. Well, I love that you've shared that story because as you were talking, I was back sitting in a meeting, hearing you say that, right? You, I remember you sharing the page Turner example over 10 years ago. And as you were sharing it just now, I thought, you know, isn't it wonderful? You had to be the person that shared that, right? Someone sitting in the room that had whatever career choice, they were an instructional designer maybe, and looked at the world from their view, as we all do, might have said 
a comment like that, but the way you said it came from experience of being a writer, of being a publisher, of being someone who loves to bring books into the world from the genres that you chose, right? Like the ones that you have your other podcasts about and everything, you were able to make that comment from a space of knowing that the world loves these books and there's no graphics in them. So a lot of people are creating wonderfully engaging content and they don't happen to be in the world of e-learning, but we can learn a lot from them. And you were able to bring that knowledge to the table in that. I wanted to share a quick thought as we wrap this up and I, and I want you to follow up with any design thoughts, Anthony, that you want to, but I wanted to just share at the end of this interview that I remember when we were recruiting production managers and we were recruiting a couple and your resume came across. I was a hiring manager and I was like, oh, this is interesting. This guy has a lot of video background and some educational videos, some graphics and oh, wow. Like he's created his own podcast. He's the design guy. You know, he's, he's like sharing design principles and very simple ways. And I went out and I listened to your podcast and I could tell by the dates on the podcast and everything that you had really put a lot of effort into it over a couple of months, that it wasn't something that you'd had out for like a year and that you gradually did, that it's something you put out there very quickly. And I thought, you know, maybe he's done this as part of his job search, right? He's got his, this out there as a portfolio And I remember thinking, you know, I don't know that our organization is ready yet for podcasting. I don't know that he will be able to do some of the things that he did, but we need someone that has this background and thinks this way to help us with our products. And maybe at some point we will be ready for him to show us about podcasting and do more podcasting. And so from the outside now, looking in, it's amazing to me to see how all of your past experiences have led to this point where now you are the producer of multiple podcasts and you bring your design thinking to it. You bring your technology to it. You bring your experience now in the acquisition world and production management to it. And it kind of brings something that I say a lot now. It's that no past experience is wasted unless, of course, you waste it, right? It all adds to what you offer the world. And so it's interesting to see, looking back, how you are now fully engaged in bringing all of those disciplines together toward designing something that is powerful and useful for a wide range of people. And a lot of that designing is coming through the medium of podcasting and video. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, and I hope that's an encouragement to people. Like a lot of us, we've had to do different things in our career. We've had to reinvent a lot in an age of disruption. So we feel like we've got these contradictory things on our resume. But you know, it's interesting. It all forms a complement. It's kind of this uh, tossed salad, if you will, of things that mm-hmm. can all work together. And if you can, you often we have a through line in our career. The one I've identified is really working with clients to understand their needs, Mm -hmm. whether that was me selling a variable annuity in Boston or Manhattan about 20 years ago, (laughs) or whether it was figuring out that we shouldn't be creating an e-learning thing, we should create a documentary uh, or, you know, or just how to solve this one little widget, you know, 
for somebody. Um, it's all about clients and requirements. So that was my through line. Mm -hmm. So I would encourage people to just see, uh, maybe step back and see the forest for the trees and uh, how you can kind of design your career and, and everything you did counts. Everything builds upon uh, one another and you can really use it all. So good, Anthony. In fact, as I have been listening to your responses and sharing in this interview, I'm wishing that we could get on again and talk just about one specific area because I kind of threw a lot of questions and a lot of information and areas of design out there. But I think you're a great example of someone that cares very deeply about design and wants to make sure that we keep it very forefront in our lives, in our work, in solving problems, and in all of the things. So I'm glad that you came on today and spoke about that um, with us, because there's so many pieces and parts of design to think about, to rethink, to be open to hearing from others about. And it's just, it's a never-ending supply of <laughs> information and thoughts to discuss. Well, thank you for having me on. I'm, I'm really excited to have the opportunity. I hope some of this helps. I love free ranging and roving stuff. And I hope what we did is actually something that people will follow with interest because uh, it, it, you know, it's like one of those things where, you know, it all interconnects in the end somehow. Yes. And, it, but it was sure a lot of fun getting to this place. So thank you for having me on and doing this today. Thank you so much. Good luck with all of your endeavors. And I will talk with you soon. All righty. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.